Hello and welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. In our conversation series, we delve a little deeper to hear directly from artists, and for this episode, I spoke with Georgina Q. Over the last two years, Georgina has undertaken a major shift in her practice, now creating photographs from her parents' garage, which blend German expressionism, graffiti, data theatre, film noir and classical Greek aesthetics, just to name a few. I caught up with Georgina to talk about her practice and these images. I know that your theatrical photographs began with a short video you made in 2016 called Living Room. Can you talk through how that work came about? It was quite an unusual process that the making of that video. I hadn't uh, made a video before. It sort of came out of a circumstance I found myself in basically while I was li- uh, moved back into my parents' house. And just as an incidental outcome of that, I began using their garage as a studio. At the time, I had a studio and I found uh, working sort of previously with textiles and sculpture, I was kind of getting a bit stale and a little bit stylistically entrapped. And uh, so I just began a process of making these little short vignettes But basically, they were just sort of these little performances that I would do in my parents' garage. And it sounds a bit pedestrian, but I actually just filmed them on my iPhone and I found that a really good way of making really kind of informal performances and documenting them. I also used an app uh, called 8mm. It's been used in a couple of feature films, but it, what it does is con- converts a video automatically into a film noir kind of style. I found that a really interesting way of sort of just incorporating my interests in using light and I guess how imagery has been made sort of throughout the 20th century. And at the time, I was looking at a lot of different sources during the silent film era, so a lot of Robert Wines films, The Cabinet of Dr Caligari, uh, Genuine, Metropolis. There was a Soviet film that I was really inspired by called Alita. And so uh, I had sort of all these references on the side that I was really interested in. And then at the same time I was making these just little kind of idiosyncratic videos in my parents' garage Instead of working in the studio, which I had done for about 10 years, working in the garage, it's sort of an unusual space where nothing felt contrived. I didn't have any expectations about what to make or what I should make. And so it became this really informal place to experiment with video and performance. And so that video came out of me creating several sort of little sketches and vignettes of myself dressed up as kind of a silent film era femme fatale. And during the filming, there might be breaks in kind of the artifice of, you know, creating a silent film so the garage door might have opened or um, the dog might walk into a scene or things like that. And I've always sort of had an interest in creating an illusion and then showing, I guess, the the modes of production behind that illusion. And once I sort of started creating these little sketches or vignettes of these performances, then I wrote a script for that the short video and it was based on the Greek myth of um, Pygmalion. And in this video, I cast myself as three women and they're each based on two Robert Wine films. So one, I played a woman from Genuine, one of the female characters from Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and then the female character from Alita. And 
the premise of the video was that I cast a male actor who is a painter and basically his painting comes to life, which is myself, and he falls in love with me. And then things sort of happen to me throughout the film where I die. And so then he continually tries to kind of like resurrect me and I become a different femme fatale kind of character. And then in the end, I paint him and he turns into a painting. So, and throughout the the narrative of that, there's sort of breaks in the artifice of the silent film illusion and it becomes more apparent that sort of this whole story is being filmed in a garage, like suburban garage. In terms of creating the set or how it comes together, do you start with the materials or do you start with an idea of how you want it to look overall? It actually is really trial and error. When I start with a set, it's quite unusual because Sometimes I visualise what I think is going to work and I design and photograph it and it just looks quite flat. And then the things that I don't think will look very good, but I try them anyway, often those are the things that tend to be the most interesting. So it really is trial and error. And I guess my process, it's pretty rigorous in the studio when I'm producing and designing the sets and I'll produce as many as I can and then just workshop from there. A lot of what directs how I design a set is to do with colour and then the design quite often is based on sort of a culmination of different source material that I've been looking at at the time, um, which might be Italian futurism or sort of modernist painting or Dada theatre. Why did you decide to just do the production of still images instead of keeping with the video work? So I never intended to produce photographs ever really. That was very much just an incidental outcome of the video. When I was creating a show in 2016 and I was producing this video, I decided to just sort of offhand bring my friend in, Adrian Stojkovic, to take some stills of me in character for each of the three sets. So I had three female characters, three sets. And I just thought it might be good to just sort of document the process. And we took these photos and there was something about, maybe it was because they were completely unintentional or we they weren't intended to be used as artwork, but there was something that was really appealing about them to me. And I, I ended up liking them more than the film itself. And so I've just continued with that because I think that looking at the first photographs that I made, I could see things that I want to explore further. You can, as you've sort of already talked about, you can quite obviously see the influence of German expressionism in the photos. And I was just wondering what, first of all, drew you to that genre? Did you kind of grow up watching those films? I didn't really. I mean, I think the visual style was is quite recognisable and really distinct. I think that in, in the previous work that I made, a lot of it was based on noir film and also forensic photography as well. So I did kind of a sabbatical in 2010 and I went to the New York Municipal Archives where I sort of went through about 1,400 different um, forensic photographs and a lot of them were kind of, a lot of them had a really, a quality to them, which I think similar to noir film, a quality that German expressionism film has. And I think that what I did was sort of I began with an interest in noir film and looking at how light and photography and film or like have been used within the 20th century. And then I kind of retroactively just went backwards and because German expressionism was kind of a precedent for noir film. When I sort of went further back 
and looked at German Expressionism, I was just so intrigued by how resourceful they were during that era. I mean, Cabinet of Dr Caligari, they... Robert Wine decided to paint the sets, so they painted light and shadow on the sets because they couldn't afford proper lighting. I think visually it it sort of seems quite ad hoc, but I really like that effect. It's very, like there's such a material quality to all of the sets. And it was it's just so fascinating to see like how the how ad hoc the materials they used were, but how they translated into film so well. And it almost seems as if the ad hoc materials were required to get that effect. So I was really, became really interested in how these certain materials that they used were, you know, they everything had to be like, they had to increase the contrast so much for everything, even down to the makeup on the actresses' faces because they needed to exaggerate their expression because the film couldn't pick up on the details as well. I just found that really interesting how sculpture and props and painting, once mediated through film, can become something completely different. I also think, I mean, German Expressionism, there's sort of theories around how that emerged, that style of really quite fantastical sets came about because it was kind of post-World War One, and Germany was quite kind of traumatised and there's these ideas that kind of culturally... Germany kind of retreated into fantasy within their films because it was just the public wanted to have relief from sort of the reality of living in post-World War One. That's interesting though because a lot of those films, they have fantasy, then there's that moment at the ending where the fantasy is kind of brutally ripped apart sometimes. That's true as well. Like that's in The Cabinet of Dr Caligari and yeah, there's, I feel like maybe that comes out of filmmaking had it was kind of in its infancy at that time and I think that they the filmmakers also had a fascination with artifice and breaking that artifice as well. I know you were partly influenced by the film The Blood of the Poet by Jean Cocteau and I'm wondering what it is about the idea of drawing something which comes to life or the artist having that power but then also the artist being overpowered by their creations at some point as well. And so I'm just wondering what kind of appeals to you about that dualism. Well, I mean, you know, with the theme of Pygmalion and Galatea, I feel as if, and also with Jean Cocteau's films, which often have that theme in them, I think that there's sort of, and it might sound a bit pastiche, but there's kind of a lesson there, which is not to become obsessed or too entailed in your own work. I mean, that was what I took from the myth of Pygmalion and Galatea. There's sort of a inherent danger in becoming so absorbed in your work that you just don't, you just become closed off to the world completely. Mm. I think that's largely what intrigues me about that. And having an obsessive nature myself, it's probably something that I need to continually adhere to. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I would fall in love with my own work, but... Um, and I was thinking about it too. I was at that idea of falling in love with your own work. Yeah. And I was like, you are in your own work. Yeah. And then you just be falling in love with yourself. And that's just all very strange. Well, that's why it was weird making the film that I cast myself as the, the artwork, not the artist, which was, I found kind of, it was sort of interesting that I, maybe there was, it was just a little bit meta, I guess, but it was sort of, I, I cast this male actor to become the artist in my own work. Mm-hmm who then falls in love with me, who plays the art artwork. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was several layers to that. But, um, 
Yeah, it, it's unusual, I think. But I do, I I think particularly with Cocteau's work, he, he often, what I so much love about his films and his drawings is that he very much, he was very much inspired by Greek mythology and Greek literature and even just stylistically his drawings often have kind of like a Western Greek, like there's a Grecian style to his drawings. And in Blood of the Poet particularly, I I loved his creation of Venus de Milo, who, which was played by Lee Miller, who's an artist. And a series of works I made last year, I sort of <laughs> reenacted her character of Venus de Milo in a similar in terms of the costume, because he'd covered her in white makeup and then drew these really heavy black lines across her face that outlined her facial details, but not it was in a way that looked quite two-dimensional. And so he kind of reduced her to this style of drawing that he did of Grecian sculpture. And I really love that. And I, th- I find it interesting <laughs> to a, a lot of his drawings I use as motifs in my photographs and I think it's interesting to kind of look at Western ideals of the body as it was explored in Greek art through Cocteau's eye as well. So it's almost like mediated through another artist's interpretation because I think there's several levels of mediation before something reaches my photograph, if that makes sense. You know, I don't necessarily take a Venus de Milo sculpture and put it into my photograph uh, as a prop or something. I kind of do it through Cocteau's eyes because I find him a really fascinating figure. And But then also it's sort of mediated through the fact that it's not his work, it's like a graffiti sketch or something like that that I've done. So when you've got all these really disparate influences, like you've got Cocteau and the German Expressionism and then graffiti... Are you, do you imagine yourself starting from one particular point or is the idea from the outset that you know you're going to have all these converging points and you have to bring those together? It really varies depending on the photograph. I think that I do, quite often I'll have one core stylistic reference point. So it might be a Kandinsky painting or it might be a still from an Italian futurist film that I found really intriguing. I mean, the I think the challenge is all of the, the disparate references, it's not difficult for them to come together. I think probably the challenge is not to make the photograph too derivative of one reference because mm-hmm. then I'm just kind of recreating something that already exists mm-hmm. and it's not so much my work. I mean, for instance, a recent photograph that I made based on Picasso, a Picasso painting, The Three Musicians, I sort of had to find a way to break it out of, you know, formally I, I was really intrigued in using these warm browns, which I hadn't done before, mm-hmm. and I, I sort of used a storage box that was a couple of metres tall actually and I just had that freestanding and then I sp- I painted the foreground based on this painting that he did and had to incorporate other elements that were a little bit more less Picasso in style because my my concern was that it would be, again, too derivative of just, you know, his painting. That's not the only reason why I incorporated those props. I wanted to have this kind of like sense of it being a a still life because I'm not in this photograph but, you know, there's kind of a presence of, there's like an abject presence of the body So it almost has more of a Dada still life, like a playful set, if that makes sense. When you have a set and say you take a photograph, do you then 
mull over that photograph for a few days or like when, how do you know when for the so set long. gets to get taken down? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. I, um, <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that's actually a really good question because I've, I've driven myself crazy before making a set and, you know, deciding. That being said, it's not just me that makes these decisions. I do have three or four really good friends who give me feedback and they're really invested and I really, I appreciate their advice and it just helps me get outside of my own head in terms of judging certain things, especially when you're very physically engaged with the work, you can sort of lose that objectiveness. So I do get second opinions, but in the past I have decided to axe a set and, you know, I've just torn it down and rolled it up and thrown it out. And then I've gone back a month later and thought, no, I need to use that. So then I've just had to completely recreate it based on this tiny image that I have left on my phone. So I think my lesson in that is to keep everything that I make because I might reuse it again. But it is the process of making, of sort of spraying the set and painting isn't that rigorous, but I think assembling all the cardboard backdrops because they're quite large and sort of suspending them in the garage, that's quite physically rigorous, just setting it up. And you do all of that yourself? I do. I mean, it's not, again, it's very ad hoc. It's not, <laughs> when I've had studio visits before, people have been surprised at how how low, lo-fi the, the sets are and how, like, they're so flimsy. The backdrops are, it's just very thin cardboard. But I think something about once they're photographed, they seem a lot more s- solid. And I have had times when the, the sets have literally just folded in and... <laughs> But it's part of the appeal. I like the the quicker and sort of the more ad hoc I can produce them, I think the better. I know you take influence from John Devola and his abstract graffiti works that he'd spray in abandoned places and then photograph. And I was reading that apparently he doesn't uh, like to have his photos reduced to a series of symbols. Like he's not saying that the symbols aren't there, but he's also just saying that the photos aren't that reductive either. And I just wonder if you have a similar worry about your photos that people could just utterly reduce them. I mean, something something that I can definitely empathise with Devola, and I think possibly what he means in there, this is what I'm interpreting, is that he, like sort of the cartography of his painting and things like that, the, the, his practice isn't painting explicitly and it's not photography explicitly. I mean, in the past he said that he would, ideally he would just like to be able to send a JPEG and the JPEG is just the artwork itself. And I would imagine that similarly he wouldn't want his work to be interpreted exclusively through the painting or through the photography or, I mean, there is sort of a degree of performance as well in his work and I think that would be reductive. I kind of, I like how his work sort of slips across all the genres and similarly I, I personally like to think of my work as, I mean, obviously the end result is photography, that's what I show in the gallery, but it is kind of, it's not about the craft of photography it's, it also incorporates sort of the practice of painting, but it's not really painting. I mean, it's graffiti and spray painting. And there's also a degree of performance there, but it's not, you know, and it's self-portraiture, but, it, you know, I'm not sort of trying to do a Cindy Sherman style of serial characters that I play. So I think in terms of the parallels between Duvall's work and mine, that's sort of what I take from that. Can we talk about the figure of the femme fatale? 
And I mean, it's a figure which is, you know, strongly linked to film noir and, but then also kind of has its roots, like you sort of said before, in German expressionist films. And I also know that the 1920s Russian film Alita is so important to your work as well. Can you explain why you evoked those figures? I mean, a part of it was just incidental, to be honest, where I was looking at that era of photography and film and incidentally looking at the female characters that came out of that era, which were mostly kind of femme fatale figures. And I guess it's sort of a style of work that I'm quite interested in at the moment, which is sort of contemporary female artists butting up against 20th century avant-garde art and looking at how women have been depicted in film because, I mean, the character of the femme fatale, that goes back into sort of ancient mythology. But particularly in film, it was sort of very much choreographed by male filmmakers Mm. and it's sort of a woman who's quite sexually promiscuous and there's sort of a a warning about the dangers of succumbing to a woman in that position of power or something. Yeah, she'll be like disastrous for world kind. Yeah, yeah. And often she, I mean, in the films like um, Genuine by Robert Wine, the female character from that who is genuine, she, um, again, she's a, it's like the Pygmalion, she's a painting that comes to life and she plays a vampire female. I feel like the vampire was a character or sort of a, there were a lot of femme fatale characters that played a, a succubus or like a vampire that would like suck the life out of men and it's quite an unusual trope of that era. But it, And again, it was sort of shaped by a lot of male, mostly male directors at that time. It seems like a caricature now, but it's still, I think that that's still, you know, the different tropes of female characters in film has, even if it's... Sh- not so much the femme fatale now, it's still continued throughout the 20th century and 21st century. But then it's also tied to that, there's a lot of kind of mythology around that style of like the female who sucks the life out of man and is in this sort of like, you know, she's sexually liberated and there's a danger in that or something. Mm-hmm. I find that quite intriguing. I mean, there's there's like a lot of empowering readings of that figure as well, which kind of say that, you know, she's like a direct threat to like patriarchy and ideas yeah, exactly. of the family and things yep. as well. But in terms of taking that figure and then blending that with more, I guess, more modernist understandings of the female body and then classical kind of ancient Greek understandings as well, then also like the kind of sneaky little Adidas logo <laughs> that's in there. Uh, it's like the female body is this series of simultaneous projections across a really long period of history. Is that how you see her? It is. I think that it's, I liked that you just gave a series of like descriptions that were kind of, I think they were quite on point. And it's not, I mean, because it's not explicitly the femme fatale that I'm trying to project. Mm -hmm. And I don't think including myself in the photographs, although it's, I mean, I think that particularly if you're a female artist and you photograph yourself, that's immediately saying something Mm. in the work and you're bringing in a certain genre of self-portraiture that has a quite a long um, history to it. 
But that being said, I think that it's hopefully the way that I'm doing it is not, I'm not trying to communicate one single opinion about how women have been portrayed. And I think that having the layers of how, um, I guess, you know, how I use a female body, which is my own, but I, I see it more as a prop rather than myself and how I use a female body, which is kind of a conglomeration of, again, it's, there's contemporary costume, uh, there's also costume that I made. She's also based on several different characters that have emerged in films. I paint her completely with body paint that in real life looks absurd. So it's I feel as if that female character becomes quite abstracted. And why does she always have her head turned away, but really defiantly turned away as well? I know, that's true, isn't it? I think I've done a few different poses, but there's one that I'm constantly drawn to and it is sort of, it's a little bit cabaret, the way that I sort of lie down with one of my legs drawn up. I honestly feel, I think that there's a there's a reference there to silent film stills because I think that quite often, I do look at a lot of silent film stills and quite often that's the case, You don't they don't look at the camera and... There's sort of an austere, like stoic expression on their face. And I think that I've borrowed from that quite often. Do you find that when men uh, include themselves in their works, people can somehow seem to very easily separate the eye of the author and then the eye of the person in the work? But I often find that when females include themselves in the work, Everyone seems to blur those lines a lot more or they become more invested. Yeah, it's it's kind of an unusual... I mean, I was talking to a friend recently actually about this and we were discussing John Bock, the German performance artist, and my argument was that, you know, when he performs, it's sort of less about gender. And I was commenting that, you know, once I, photo, as a female artist, as soon as I photograph myself, the conversation about gender emerges immediately and because there's such a you can't avoid that really but you know after discussing it we realize that John Bock it's his work is very masculine actually and it does there's kind of an aggression there I don't know if I would say the conversation about gender is there in his work but I certainly think that gender influences his work but there is it, it is an unusual thing and it's something that I found actually when I worked with textiles as well. I noticed that in terms of the way that the dialogue that surrounds artists who work with textiles is different between male artists and female artists. Working with textiles as a female artist, the conversation would turn towards sort of craft and I would have to kind of resist that quite often, whereas I feel like that's less of a conversation that happens with male artists who work with textiles. I think you're right. Like it is, it would be naive to think that you could separate your photographs from gender, but do you ever wish there were conversations about them that didn't have such implications to gender? No, I don't mind it. I mean, I don't, I think that the way that I've been developing the photographs over the last two years is I'm using myself less in the photographs and I mean, I have no control over whether, you know, that conversation is brought up and it's not, I think it's actually key to the photograph as well. I don't want to disregard it. I don't think it's the only thing that happens in the photograph. There's a lot happening. I mean, there's a lot, visually there's a lot happening. So to kind of crystallise it just down to that 
personally, that's not how I would interpret an image. Also, I sort of break the serial self-portraiture style by incorporating a lot of still life photographs just to sort of break that dialogue a bit and maybe deviate more from self-portraiture into sculpture and painting and, and the historical references I use. I was wondering about sense of humour in your work and how there is this interplay between cinematic fantasy and real life. And I kind of find it a bit funny sometimes, I guess, because at the end of the day, you know, despite the pose or the sort of the way the set is put together, it is someone in a garage surrounded by spray painted materials and cardboard and whatnot. And to me, there was just this aura of it being a bit tragicomic sometimes. Yeah, yep. Is it is a very purpose? tragic comic. I almost think of it to a degree what, what, and I'm in my parents' garage and I'm surrounded by these sets. It's almost like a seedy teenage bedroom and having all these posters hanging up and, I mean, I'm 31 years old and I'm sort of in my parents' garage making these sets. I didn't intentionally incorporate the, the humorous elements. I think they, if they just come through, they come through. And that was Georgina Q discussing her most recent photographic images. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes as well as check in with Art Guide Online or pick up a copy of the print edition to keep up to date with art-related news, articles and features from around Australia.